Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for that invitation, that uh, introduction, and also the invitation to be here today um, and for continuing to ask when I would put you off. This morning, I would like to tell you a story. Our story begins in 1 Samuel 25 with some sad words. Now Samuel died. Samuel, that's Israel's prophet. Samuel, that's the man that God used to choose Israel's king, reject him, and choose another one. Samuel, he's the man who anointed David. And what will Israel do without him? More to the point, what will David do without him? I'd better back up just a little bit and give you some context. David, who was anointed by Saul, or excuse me, Samuel, years earlier to be the next king of Israel, has been withdrawing in the wilderness in a life-and-death version of hide-and-seek with the current king, Saul. From cave to cave, David retreats and Saul advances. The Bible tells us that Saul sought David every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And it was while hiding in one of those mountain caves that David wrote the psalm that Destiny read for us this morning. He wrote, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. And from cave to cave, David is living proof that that is true, that God was doing just that. One occasion, he and Saul were so close, they were on the opposite side of the same mountain. And it was at that moment that the Lord sent a messenger to tell Saul that Philistines were making attacks, and Saul had to go. On another occasion, Saul came to the very cave that David was hiding in. But he wasn't there with his men to make an attack. He was there to relieve himself. And David was so close to him, he was able to cut off the corner of his cloak. Saul repented of seeking David in that moment. He was ashamed and um, acknowledged that David should be the next king, and he went home. But then we get to the beginning of chapter 25 and those sad words, now Samuel died. And the narrative changes. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. All that is, except David. Now certainly he would have been mourning, but he was not able to assemble and mourn with his countrymen, because in this moment of deep grief, he was also in greater danger than ever before. After all, Samuel, the Lord's prophet, the one who anointed him, now he's gone. Will others still recognize the call that's on his life? Saul has just recognized it. Now what will he do if he's repented while Samuel was alive? Will he continue in that? Will he continue to seek David's life now that Samuel is gone? So David withdraws farther south into the wilderness than he ever has before, into the wilderness of Paran, which was one of the places that 
the children of Israel wandered before they entered Canaan. And it's here in the wilderness of Paran that our story really heats up. You see, David and his band of now 600 men are in the wilderness, and they happen upon the servants of a very rich man. He's so wealthy that the Bible tells us what he owned before it tells us what his name is. He owned 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And even though it was likely quite difficult to provide food in the wilderness for his men, David doesn't filch from these flocks. He and his men protect the shepherds with their presence. 400 men, 600 men, a fighting band, that would deter thieves, wouldn't it? Soon it was time for the sheep to the sheep to be sheared. And it was a time of feasting and celebration and generosity. So, in keeping with the season and realizing the service he's done for Nabal, David sends 10 of his young men to that rich man, Nabal of Carmel. We're going to pick up the biblical narrative in 1 Samuel 25, verse 5. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me, I invite you to do that. I'm picking up in verse 5. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Peace. Peace, peace. Peace to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. It's clear that David has good and peaceful intentions towards Nabal. And it's just in accordance with the context of the times, the generosity of the season, that he's made this reasonable request. Unfortunately, Nabal was not a reasonable man. The Bible doesn't often make direct statements of characterization, but about Nabal, it tells us that he was both harsh and badly behaved. And on top of that, his name itself means fool. He was like a surly and snappish dog, always snarling, biting at the hand that has protected him. So sure enough, Nabal takes this polite request from David, and he turns around and returns a snarl. Verse 10 reads like this. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to Men who come from, I don't know where? Clearly, Nabal is not asking, who is David? Because he doesn't know. 
He even knows who his father is, and he knows his situation running from his master in the wilderness. In this time of grief over Samuel's death, in this time of greater danger from King Saul, in this time of questioning about his anointing, Nabal's insult strikes David deeply. There are many servants these days who are running away from their masters. You're nothing special, David. You're a nobody, and you are betraying those who are better than you, and I don't care if you need help. David has been wronged. His honor has been assaulted. His kindness has been dismissed. His intentions have been maligned. David has been wronged. Have you? Have you ever known the discomfort of a false accusation? Of being looked over, misunderstood? Of intentionally harmful words stabbed in your direction? But perhaps your problem is a bit different. Perhaps, like David, you are struggling to care for those who are in your responsibility and the the ends just aren't meeting in the middle. Or perhaps you've experienced a loss. Your own Samuel has died or gone and you're left lonely and scared. And perhaps the things that are important to you are threatened by a change of situation and circumstance and life feels unstable beneath your feet. All of us have problems. One problem that I've had lately is moving. We've enjoyed our two years here to the full. We've had some really rich experiences, some rewarding friendships. And the only problem is we can't stay. And we knew that all along, of course, but um, change is coming. It's coming fast, and I don't enjoy change. (laughs) So what's your problem at present? Would you do me a favor? Pull out your bulletin and jot down a word or a phrase. What's your problem? Or frame it in your mind and picture it. We all have problems. And as David is about to discover, there are at least two ways to handle them. In verse 12, So David's young men turned away and came back and told David all this, all the insults of Nabal. And David said to his men, Every man, strap on your sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. In the space of two paragraphs, David has gone from peace, 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 to sword, sword, sword. Have you ever been tempted to strap on your sword and hack your problems to pieces? A moment ago, I asked you to identify a problem in your mind or jot it down in your notes, and now I'd like you to take it a step further. What does your sword look like? 
When your problem presents itself, how are you tempted to handle it? What's your natural response? Perhaps like David, you've ever been tempted to return an insult with violence or simply destroy the reputation of someone who's hurt you. But sometimes our problems don't look like insults or false accusations from hateful people. And our story doesn't always look just like David's. And our swords may not look anything like his ancient weapon. For example, I'll be personal, my problem sometimes is the need to feel valued. And instead of taking on God's expectations and finding value in him, I take on the expectations of other people and feel good about myself when I get their approval. And sometimes my problem is a sense of pain inside, and my sword is to pursue an unhealthy coping mechanism rather than dealing with the root of the issue. And sometimes my problem is as simple as my sweet children insisting on being children, even when it's inconvenient. And my sword is sometimes angry words and impatience. And of course, as I mentioned, my problem recently has been coping with the changes that are coming. And I'll admit that at one point, my sword sounded like, hey, honey, Maybe we should see what jobs are available down at the university these days. So I'll be honest with you. I've got rather a lot of problems and a few sinful swords. Can you be honest with you too? What's your problem, Ben? And what's your sword? Our swords are those actions that make up our own attempts to solve our problems rather than relying on God. But David's story isn't finished yet. In verse 14, it's but, it's a good word, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Before I go on, that word railed, it's just too delicious to pass up. In the Hebrew lexicon, it reads to rush violently upon any person or thing. Has it ever seemed like your problems are rushing violently at you, shrieking as they come? Surely a sword is, is justified in those cases. It's just self-defense, right? But let's continue. The young man says, yet his men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste. Now, there's a few things we should know about Abigail. First of all, the Bible tells us directly that she was discerning. 
It means she had wisdom, insight, understanding, intelligence. She was one smart cookie. The second thing we can know about Abigail is that she is a woman of decided action. In this short story, she hurries no less than three times. A third thing that we can know about Abigail is that she was beautiful. And I'm sure that that never hurts one's case when you're handling an insulted warrior. So wise and discerning Abigail sees this problem for what it is. Her foolish husband, who should have been happy to repay the man who had protected his assets in the wilderness, has instead insulted the same man who killed a giant and paid for his first bride with foreskins. This is not looking good for Abigail's family. So quickly, she gathers a feast. You'll find it in verse 18. 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, 35 quarts of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs. Now that is a well-stocked pantry. How abundant is this provision that God is making for David through Abigail while he's busy sharpening his sword? How much better is it than the bread and the water and the meat that Nabal just denied him? So Abigail knows she'd better act swiftly, she better not spare any cost, and wisely she sends those donkeys laden with her gifts ahead of her on the road. And if you can just imagine it in your mind, a dusty road, from one direction, here comes David. He's got that sword strapped to his side. His jaws clenched in anger. And there's 400 men behind him. And all the while, his feet are pounding that path. Here he comes, swirling in the mind, his mind are the insults of Nabal and the resentful, murderous thoughts. Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. From the opposite direction comes Abigail. First, several donkeys, heavily laden with food, led by an unarmed servant man. Next, Abigail herself, riding her donkey as fast as she can, her mind swirling as well, trying to compose a comprehensible message. What do you say to a murderous warrior on his way to your house? A handful of donkeys with food, 400 men with swords. Is your heart beating a little harder yet? I'm sure hers was. And as she passes into the shadow of the mountain, she sees him. David, in all his fighting glory, with all his fighting men. And now, Abigail hurries for the second time in our story. She hurries and gets down from her donkey. She hurries and falls on her face. 
she bows to the ground and she falls at David's feet. This woman has dramatic humility down pat. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt, she tells David with her face in the dust. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Perhaps David nodded to her. Perhaps she got up a little bit with her onto her knees, but with her head still bowed. Perhaps. She says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal, fool is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see your young men whom you sent. If I had seen them, David, it would have been different. And with these words, Abigail completely assumes the guilt of her husband. The guilt that has nothing to do with her. The guilt that she had to hear about through the grapevine of her servant man. But in spite of all this dramatic humility, Abigail is not groveling. She is not begging. And her message is about to take a staggering turn. In verse 26, she continues, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Can you hear the confidence in her words? Abigail boldly, bravely tells a murderous man that the Lord is working on his behalf through her. The Lord is restraining him through her. She just assumes the victory of her message. I have to wonder, was there any indication in David's face that he was going to listen to her? Did his eyes soften a little bit or his hand move away from the hilt of his sword? Was there any indication at all? Or did she confidently announce the Lord's message while his jaw was still as, as hard as steel? Perhaps she was so sure of his character as God's anointed that she understood that this was simply an out-of-character action, a deviation from the norm. The text doesn't tell us what was on her mind, but it does tell us what she said next. She encourages him. Second half of verse 28, the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. While Nabal struck deeply at David's heart of insecurity, calling him a nobody, implying his anointing was null and void, Abigail does the opposite. God will make you into what he said, she reassures. You are fighting God's battles. Evil will not be found in you. And I think this is amazing because at that very moment... David was on his way to fight his own battle and to kill her family. And in that moment, God gives Abigail his eyesight. 
God says, you are fighting my battles, David. God says, you are righteous. And God says, my promise is sure. In describing David, not as he is, but as God has seen him, Abigail enters prophetic territory. Have you ever wondered how God sees you? Rest assured, dear friend, in the middle of your failures, God sees your potential. God sees what he can do through you. You're wrapped in Christ's robe of righteousness, and God does not see you as you are, but he sees you as you're designed to be. And Abigail's prophetic encouragement is only half begun. I'll continue in verse 29. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, wouldn't that have been David's exact worry? If Saul comes seeking your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Aha, here it is. This is heaven's sling man. It's not David as we might have expected. It is God himself who carries the sling. And I love the contrast of this imagery. To be fair, there are some commentators who think about this bundle as a bundle of wheat tied up, collected all together. Um, But other commentators point out that at the time you would carry your precious valuables in a bundle, you'd probably strap it over your shoulders and tuck it underneath your tunic. And that's the image that I like. A bundle of valuables held close and a rough stone flung far afield. It's a poetic prophecy, and it's a precious one. Friends, you and I are tucked inside God's pouch. We're held close to his heart. God has got you. You're valuable, and you are protected. You're bound in the bundle of heaven's slingmen. Further, the people who are out to harm you and the problems that are railing at you They're nothing but stones. They're about to be hurled far away. So your problems, yeah, God's got them too. And Abigail isn't finished yet. She continues in verse 30. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Our bold leading lady has come full circle She assumes again the victory of her message that David will do as she wishes, and she encourages and she reinforces, God has got your salvation, David. You don't have to do it yourself. 
God's got us. He's got us, and he's got our problems, and he's got our salvation. And when we yield to his way, we won't have pangs of conscience hanging over our heads. Thankfully, all those years ago, David heard Abigail. He blessed God for sending her. He blessed her wisdom, and he told her, blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt, from working salvation with my own hand. And you see what word comes next there? He says, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. Peace. From peace to sword and back to peace. God has sent Abigail and helped David to honor his original intentions of peace. I think that God recognized David's natural inclinations. He was a warrior given to warfare. And his state of mind, the loss he was dealing with after Samuel's death. He recognized all of that insecurity, and he worked a miracle to provide a way of escape from the temptation that David gave in to. I know it's my natural inclination to seize control. I know it's my natural inclination to save by my own hand. My husband will tell you I'm a good little legalist. And God knows it too. And God has a way to protect me from myself and you from yourself. Even here, God has got it. And I'm not saying it's easy. It couldn't have been easy for David, a man of war, to turn around with his 400 men and walk them home. The insult still hanging over his head, ringing in his ears. But it is better. It's better than the pangs of conscience. It's better than shedding blood. And I'm also not saying that God's way is quick. It often seems like it's not. But I am saying God's way is sure. As the chapter closes, we see heaven's slingmen springing into action. Abigail arrives home, and it appears that Nabal is pretending to be the king that David later would be. The Bible says that he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And furthermore, he was drunk. So wise and discerning, Abigail holds her tongue. She goes to bed, and in the morning, when Nabal has sobered up, Abigail fills him in on what he missed. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. You know, I, I have a feeling that Abigail would have tried to be as redeeming with Nabal as she was with David. But there was a different result. Verse 37, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone, a stone in the hands of heaven's slingmen. Yes, my friends, God has got it. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. 
When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. It was never David's job. Did any of you happen to notice the the church email that went out earlier this week mentioning a email scam? It mentioned that several members in our church had responded and lost hundreds of dollars. And to be honest, our family was one of those. Some scammer cheated us out of hundreds of dollars and it can't be recouped with the fraud protection on our credit cards. But that scammer, whoever he or she is, like Nabal, is in the hands of God. And whether he, re- he or she repents like Zacchaeus, or whether his evil returns on his own head, it isn't my problem. To be honest, I spent some time being angry about it this week, and I spent some time worrying about it this week, but I didn't need to. God's got that problem too. So then we've reached the end of the story, and as often happens at the end of a happy story, there's a marriage. Abigail hurries for the third time, and this time she again mounts her donkey, again she rides towards David, but this time she yields to his request and becomes his wife. So let's compare endings for just a moment here. David's problem was an insult from a belligerent man. And David's way of solving that problem, his sword, would have resulted in the death of many innocent people. And it would have resulted in the isolation of an entire community from their future king. But on the other hand, God's method was targeted towards the sole offender in the story, the single wrongdoer. And God's method actually enhanced the community by this marriage between Abigail and the future king. So it turns out that God's sling is a precision instrument. It's far more effective than our swords. So whatever problem you wrote down earlier or whispered in your mind, that sword you tempted, you mentioned that you were tempted to use, God's got it. He's got the false accusations, the misunderstandings, the hurtful words. He's got your struggle to make ends meet. He's got your lonely, scared, and broken heart. He's got the changes and the instability in your life. He's got my upcoming move, my need to feel valued, my children. God has got it. So I don't need to worry about my future We don't need to rely on escapism or unhealthy coping mechanisms. We don't need to use angry words or accuse each other. We don't have to look for our value in other people's eyes. God's got us. He's got our problems, and we can lay down our swords. We can be kind. We can trust the Lord to execute justice on our behalf. We can find our value in what God says about us and how he sees us. And we can go forward trusting God's direction in our lives. Sometimes when we're not sure what that direction is, what our sword is, and how to lay it down, 
we can do what David did in Psalm 57 that Destiny read for us earlier. We can cry out to God Most High, the God who fulfills his purposes for us, the God who will send from heaven and save us, the God who will put to shame those who trample on us, and God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Friends, God has got it. And as for me, I choose to trust him with it. Won't you? Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for you. We're grateful that you've tucked us into your pouch and we're grateful that you're handling our problems. Lord, we choose to trust you. Give us wisdom and understanding to see how you would solve our problems. In Jesus' name, amen.